Casey Bentley, President and CEO of the Permian Strategic Partnership. Thank you very much for joining us here today. And the reason for the visit is in regards to the Permian Strategic Partnership recently came out with a study that is something I believe everybody in the oil and gas industry should probably look at, whether you're doing any sort of drilling in the Marcellus or the Bakken, the Permian. I've read reports where upwards of 60 to 70 percent is where the majority of the drilling is going to be for the next 20 years. Whether that's true or false, I trust the reports that I read by People like Tracy Bentley, where they put a lot of time and effort into these reports. I'm not saying your report has said that, but I have read reports in the past that the Permian is very prolific, and the majority of the uh, nation's drilling is going to come out of there for the next 20 to 30 years. I just wanted to preface a little bit about kind of what's happening down there before we get into the interview and talk about the... uh, study that you did as people are preparing for 2021 after an unpredictable 2020 coming off of a very unpredictable 2019, which was uh, very difficult at the end of the year as well. So uh, first of all, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. How how are you finding things there in uh, the Permian? I don't believe I've talked to you since you've gone down there. I spoke to you a couple times when you were in Colorado. So my headshot by the, my headshot of you is from your days in Colorado. So I may have to update that as well. But uh, how are things down in the Permian? Things are very well in the Permian. Uh, the Permian Basin is home to some of the most resilient, um, positive, forward-looking. People, I would suggest it anywhere in the country. And so the can-do spirit down here is alive and well. And as you just pointed out or alluded to earlier, Jason, we do know that um, when, when oil re- recovers at a healthy level and we start to see more production, um, we know that the Permian Basin is going to be the first energy basin um, to see that level of production and to see more activity. So we're cautiously optimistic. Well, from the reports I've read, not only are you guys going to be the first ones to get the the kind of the spike back, but it sounds like it'll be the last one to turn the lights off too, meaning that there's there's quite a bit there uh, for drillers where up in my neck of the woods, the Bakken, uh, that kind of shocked people with the quick the, the, the quick drop off and how quickly the extraction harvest period was. I think they thought it would be a little bit longer than what it came into. And of course, there's the refracts that they're trying to figure out how to extract more and more every day, which they will when the technology increases. But right now, it, it's doing what it's doing. You mentioned that the technology down there, at least you alluded to it. How is the technology integrating into the Permian down there? It's amazing. It's constantly changing. Just when, uh, when you think you've seen um, the newest and the best, um, our companies are innovating, and, and there's a new piece of equipment that will further decrease emissions or that will save or conserve water. I mean, it's truly amazing. And if you blink, you'll miss something. So it's, it's exciting. Talk to me about this report that you recently put out regarding the uh, Permian Basin, the strategic partnership, Permian strategic partnership, Tracy Bentley on the line with us. Uh, it talked about, I guess, the, the number of 92 billion barrels proven uh, oil reserves and I'm just looking at the kind of the brief here, and it says U.S. household energy needs for the next 60 years. So I'm looking at this, and I guess some of the preview I did before about how it really seems like the Permian is going to be kind of that safe 
investment for a lot of different oil companies to have a core or a base, if you will. Uh, talk to me about some of the specifics that the Permian Strategic Partnership, that study that it found in terms of what some of the highlights were, the takeaways, if you will. Absolutely. If I could, Jason, though, I think it's important for your listeners to understand why we did this study in the first place. So as you pointed out, we know living here and those familiar um, with the industry know that the Permian is, in fact, the largest um most prolific and secure, and secure is very important here, energy region in the entire world, not just the United States, but in the world. And so um, the importance that it has, not only to Texas and New Mexico, but to the country and to the world is astounding. And trying to help people understand this um, as part of PSP's mission. And so we speak with decision makers and leaders at the local, state, and federal levels trying to explain to them that their policy decisions, um, whether it's, you know, a, a, a new law or a new regulation, and oftentimes, though, it's investment opportunities in the Permian that could impact us for years and decades and a hundred years to come by the decisions that we're making today. And so they're intrigued by this, and they say, okay, well, show, show us numbers and, and show us current data. And so we decided that it was time to pull together an economic assessment of the of the Permian. And so we did, and it's brand new released. It's just a couple of weeks old, and it's called The Permian Basin Unlocking the Full Potential. And by the way, you can find the full report at um, permianpartnership.org for those who want to see it. And it's not long. It's an easy read, um, lots of good data in there. It's probably 50 pages or so. But it, what we found is um, that the Permian contains an enormous untapped potential. And thanks to its vast reserves, it will remain an energy epicenter and source of energy security for decades to come. Um, we also, in the report, we do discuss um, wind and solar, as West Texas does have a lot of wind and solar, and we talk about um, the importance of partnering that um, with natural gas especially, but with oil down here. Um, and we know that, as I alluded to before, infrastructure investments in the Permian are necessary if we're going to unlock the region's full potential. And so helping, again, people sitting in Washington, D.C. and in Santa Fe and in Austin understand that with some investment, um, we, can, we can and we will unlock the full potential. When you say infrastructure investment, uh, specifically, are you talking about roads, pipelines? What specifically are you talking about? Well, we're really talking about all of it, but um, in particular, under PSP's um, uh, leadership, we have we are very honed in on roads because our roads are severely outdated. Our transportation system in the Permian was really built um, at a time when agriculture was was a main part of the economy. And of course, it still is a main part of the economy, but it the the infrastructure reflects. Um, an agricultural-based uh, society where, you know, lots of uh, farm trucks and tractors, um, and it's just incredibly outdated. Uh, not only is it outdated um, physically, but uh, for, to, to, to safely transport the amount of goods and people that are that call the Permian home right now, it's just not equipped for that. So we have been working very closely with the um, Department of Transportation in the state of New Mexico, 
um, the Department of Transportation in the state of Texas and the United States Department of Transportation in the past couple of years. And I'm thrilled to say that the Permian has received three build grants over the past two years. In fact, we just received one last week to the tune of $25 million for a, a badly needed section of I-20. Um, that's very critical to getting um, our goods to market. Uh, and certainly the, the state of Texas and Mexico have been great partners. The state of Texas just recently reconfirmed $660 million dedicated to Permian uh, roads and roads repairs. So we are thrilled about the progress we're making, but we have a lot more to do. That seems to be pretty thematic with a lot of different shale plays is the roads. Pipelines are always an issue, of course, but it seems like in the last three, four years, or even 10 years, I guess, roads have been very much under the spotlight, at least that I've seen, up in the Bakken where I saw firsthand. A lot of these roads before this shale play took off maybe had about 20 combine trips a year down a lot of these roads. There was not a lot of activity. And so accordingly, these roads were not taken care of over the time, over the years. So a lot of those resources went into the uh, suburbs, went into the uh, cities. And now that it is time for some of these roads, because up, like I said, up in the Bakken, we've got a different soil up there. And so back, I mean, down where you're at with flash floods, you could probably... Uh, somewhat relate to this, but it's not unusual during a rainstorm with some of the activity out there for a section of road just to wash off because it did not have the, you know, I don't know, rebar code. I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about now, but some sort of holding together of the road when a flash flood comes. Do you know what I mean? It's like these, you mentioned it's ag, and that got me thinking like a lot of the roads built in North Dakota literally were built for about 20 combine trips a year down that road. So it's, has that ever come up about the, just, you know, the, the amount of money that's gone to, you mentioned Austin. And so that got me thinking of the, the um, rural and, and urban lifestyles and resources to where really, at least in, in North Dakota, I mean, one could argue that the lion's share of road resources really did go to the urban areas over the last 50 years versus, you know, some of these rural areas that really do need it now because these roads are 30, 40, 50 years old. Yeah, well, there's there's no doubt that that's happened uh, time and time and time again. And um, when you have a very small percentage of the state's population living in an area, in a rural part of Texas and New Mexico, i.e. the Permian, and the, the vast majority, upwards of 90% of the population is on the other side of the state, you can see how very quickly where the resources are going to go. But that's exactly one of the main reasons for this report is to let those folks know that, listen, we've got to do a better job keeping up um, with investments in the Permian because it's, it's true. While, while we do have a lesser population, um, we are still growing at a rate um, – I think we're one of the fastest growing regions in the country. Even even with the, the downturn, this area um, has seen growth that I don't think anybody saw coming. Um, and, it's, and it's bringing a lot of families here, a lot of talent, not only in our industry, but in other industries too. And so if we don't have the infrastructure to sustain that, guess what? First of all, it's a safety issue. So that we know um, from the Department of Transportation that Permian, the Permian Basin has some of the um, most deadly roads of anywhere in the country. We average a fatality per day. That is absolutely unacceptable, and we need to do better. 
But the second part of it is, is an economic story. If we don't have the infrastructure to get the energy to where it needs to go efficiently and safely, that impacts everybody's pocketbook. Um, and, and we know that it's avoidable. So there's an economic case we made and a safety case we made. And I will say um, the Texas Department of Transportation is a great example. They understood that case and said, you're right. We need to make some, some significant investments if all of these things are to come together. Looking at the Permian Basin, I do get somewhat confused in terms of the Delaware, the Wolf Camp, the Permian. I, I understand the Haynesville, and I believe I understand the Eagleford. But when it comes to the Delaware and the Midland Basin and some of these others, what what is uh, kind of included in the Permian? Is that a dumb question for somebody like myself? No, I think you you uh, but you got it right. Right, we've got the Midland um, and the Del and the Delaware basins that comprise. And there's actually a really neat graphic. Um, I need to find it for you that somebody showed me at one time. That it's a 3D graphic that shows all the different um, sub-basins that are within the Permian. Um, and it's kind of neat to see the depth and the different formations, and it, it explains a lot on why uh, production is happening where it's at. Let's see if we can find that for you. I thought at one time we had it on our website. But in, anyway, it's a very helpful tool. Well, you got to men- you sort of mentioned New Mexico, and, you know, and, I, and I, for- I forget that it does bleed into uh, New Mexico at times, much like in the Bakken bleeds into Montana and into uh, uh, Canada, but how far into New Mexico does the Permian go? Because I know that there's, you know, like you say, the Delaware, and then um, if my memory serves me correct, there's a Diablo something. No, that's more in the south. There's there's one above the Diablo uh, um, platform shelf type of a thing, too. So what, what are the outlying areas in terms of New Mexico? And then I think El Paso is pretty much on the uh, Texas side, isn't it, in terms of... A little bit before El Paso in terms of the Permian. Yeah. So primarily, um, the two counties that we include in when we talk about the Permian Basin in Mexico are Leonetti. And those are the very southeastern two counties of New Mexico. And that is where well over 90%, 95% of oil and gas production happens for the state of New Mexico. Of course, there's some um, north. Uh, in the Farmington area, but but those are definitely the two highest producing counties, not only in New Mexico, but in the country. Um, those two counties often rank, um, and here ha- certainly have recently in the top uh, three or four when it comes to production levels. And so they are in- incredibly important um, economically to the viability of the Permian. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's where I was going with my line of question is, I wanted to ask you, I didn't know how qualified you were to speak on New Mexico. We had talked about Texas uh, a little bit, and of course, people think of Texas when they think of Permian. And the New Mexico part of it, if it's, there's only two counties, yet it drills that much, or extracts that much, it harvests that much. In your study, did it kind of relate like to state governments, county governments, local governments in terms of schools, roads, et cetera, et cetera, because, man, it just seems like those two counties really pump out a lot of uh, revenue for the state of New Mexico. Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, And we we spend quite a bit of time talking about that in the study. But long and short, um, I believe that um, 
the oil and gas industry is uh, about a third or 30 percent of the uh, budget for the for the state of New Mexico. So it is significant. Um, and the funding that goes towards um, schools, um, roads, health care, I mean, all kinds of things that, quite frankly, I don't know how they would fill that gap if not for the oil and gas production in the state. And I, I also believe that the, um, the governor certainly understands this, and, as well as decision makers. So, um, you know, when you have that uh, significant contribution to a state's economy coming out of two, primarily two counties, um, you know, every single decision matters. And making sure that, of course, energy is developed responsibly, but boy, um, Creating artificial barriers to, to energy production um, can, will will um, absolutely, you know, make or break uh, an industry that's in charge um, of so much for for, for the economy there. So uh, it's it's a very delicate balance for sure. A few years ago, you were in Colorado, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, went to the Permian, and. You, that's, that's like two different worlds. You know, you were leaving one world as they were starting to try to ban as much oil and gas activity as they could. And you were going into an area where it seemed like they're pretty, pretty oil and gas friendly down in Texas and in those particular counties down in New Mexico. Was it noticeable or, or were, were you so involved in the oil and gas industry that you didn't notice anything in Colorado? Oh, no, it, it, it's incredibly noticeable. I will say that it's refreshing um, to come to an area um, and work in two states who understand the importance of, of an industry uh, and, and everything that it means to the economy and doesn't let philosophical differences get in the way of, of people um, living you know, healthy economic lives. Um, and it, it really does boil down to that. It's safe and affordable um, clean energy that, that Americans need. And so it, it was incredibly noticeable. And I will say that what's going on in Colorado now is so, it makes it genuinely makes me so sad. You know, I was born and raised fifth generation Colorado and to see the decisions that are being made so haphazardly and so irresponsibly when it comes to uh, just constant rulemaking and constant regulation on an industry that has time and time again stepped up to the table and said, we can do that, we can do that, we can innovate. Um, it, it really makes me sad. And, and it, it doesn't really make me sad because I grew up there knowing that energy is a huge piece of the puzzle and it has um, coalesced with other industries and with the population for, for the history of Colorado. And to suggest that that can't continue to happen is false. Um, but watching what it's doing to the economy and to people's jobs in Colorado is absolutely heart-wrenching. Many of them are my friends. And watching them, um, you know, their, their companies pull out of Colorado because they can't afford to produce there anymore because the regulations are becoming so burdensome um, is heartbreaking. Uh, and, I, and I often tell people, Jason, that in, in the Permian that we, we can't get too comfortable down here because there's, there's a push um, by the anti uh hydrocarbon folks out there to to shut down places like the Permian, just like they're trying to do in Colorado. And so we have to be alert, eyes wide open, and the Balkan too. I know that you all know this up there, but be very, not get too comfortable and be aware that, the, that those, those viewpoints are everywhere. And so making sure that we make good decisions 
um, when it comes to voting and to who, who we're going to put in charge uh, of our decisions is it is never been more important than now. I'm going to tell you a little story that I've been observing over the last 10 years or so. Uh, I was part of a news organization. We won two national awards over the course of three years. Well, we have a lot of floods. When you have floods, you tend to win awards. Uh, but we, we also had a very good news team. And during the news uh, segment, during those years, there was there a smoking ban was going on. A lot of restaurants were getting kind of pushed into having a smoking ban. And and wh- whether it's right or wrong or the politics behind it, um, that's not where I'm going with it. The way I'm going with it was kind of the public health angle. And when I saw what Colorado was doing five, six years ago, I started talking about that on this program. And to see how it, it's been going on, I've seen a lot of change happen in the image of oil and gas. I've seen a lot of happen with the, I guess, uh, overlooking of oil and gas. It's very different is what I'm getting at. It's a very different challenge that we're up against. Um, by, by were, I mean just people trying to have a civil conversation, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, what kind of, uh, you know, looking back, what kind of advice would you have or what kind of words might you have for people that are either in the state government in Colorado or maybe people in the industry? Just, you you know, you're a leader in the industry and you have firsthand knowledge of what it was like in Colorado in the lion's den, so to speak. And, and now you're in the Permian where, hey, it's just, this is like pinnacle, top of the world. We're, we're definitely a leader in the United States, if not the world. When I look at the question I just asked you, the message we've been trying to preach, you know, we've asked uh, the governor of Colorado to come on our program probably three times. He's turned us down. But we've asked him to come on because one of our missions, one of our core missions is inclusion. We always want to include outsiders. That's why we go and we help people plant trees and we help people pick up. Uh, We've adopted a highway, you know, and that sort of thing. We've done a lot of these things that are quote unquote environmentalists, but we, we just do it because we enjoy it and we know that's where everybody's going anyways. So, you know, inclusion, hope, service, awareness, that's kind of the message I try to give to people in the oil and gas industry, whether you're in industry or government, because we're working with a company right now, weareenergyunited.com. And they're looking at ways to bring all the different energies together because well, BP and Shell and all these guys five, six years ago started running, you know, all the above. They started getting down that path back then as well. So I really spoke a lot longer than I anticipated on this question because actually I just want to, I didn't want to put you on the spot by, by saying, hey, what advice do you got for Colorado people? Like some sort of gotcha question. That's why I kind of editorialized a little bit to let you know that, you know, there's there is a real issue here, but I also think there's a solution. So uh, looking at your crystal ball, what kind of advice would you give to people in Colorado? Well, especially to um, decision makers who are in charge of, re- of regulating this industry. Uh, I, I have said it numerous times, and I'll say it again, that, um, that we can't let philosophical differences get in the way of making good, sound decisions um, that are, that are good for the economy and good for the overall health of the state of Colorado. I understand there are people out there who, on principle, don't like fossil fuels. I understand that. Um, however, when you let that 
philosophical view stand in the way of, of a good, healthy economy of affordable energy that not only Coloradans need, the entire country needs and have come to rely on, um, and, and all the jobs um, and all of the infrastructure like roads and schools and, um, you know, emergency services that have really come to depend um, on the, the taxes from that industry. So to, because of a philosophical difference, decide to pull the plug on all that, I would suggest that is wildly, wildly irresponsible. Um, think about if everybody did that to, the, to every industry they didn't like. Some people, you know, there are all kinds of um, different tastes out there, but that doesn't mean that you go sink an industry and everything that goes with it. I just, I have found it hard to believe that, that people make decisions that way, and apparently some do, but I think having a broader view of the overall health of, of a state's economy and the, the country's economy, those are good leaders to me, and I think we need more of them. Last summer I spoke on a panel with um, Colorado Oil and Gas Association and uh, Senator Cook, he was there, the old sheriff. And then... Uh, yeah, the, I love Senator Cook, he's one of my favorites. And then uh, the Wyoming Petroleum Council as well. We sat on a panel in Gillette, Wyoming, and, spo- and I, my, my message was, was quite clear, that the oil and gas industry has got to like, kind of wake up at what's going on here because uh, things are changing. And a lot of the stuff that you just mentioned really kind of reiterated what we were talking about last summer, which is pol- the politics have shifted a little bit to where facts and science doesn't really seem to weigh as much as emotion and, and things along those lines. I, I remember saying, you know, Colorado will probably move things ahead by just having a picture of a, a child with a, with a smoke coming out of a... Uh, of a Oil well, and that's actually what they ended up doing, you know. And and because if if you know anything about marketing, you know how the tobacco industry, um, right? You know, it's it's very similar, very similar models going back to the public smoking ban, and then of course the public health campaign. And so I see a lot of these 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 trends happening. But what we spoke about last summer was that the oil and gas industry, you know, needs to wake up. It was like a shakeup because of the presidential candidates back then was Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders openly talking about banning fracking. And as somebody from the media, that's an extremely irresponsible thing to report. When 93 to 96% of our daily goods come from petroleum products and our whole society is based on the, the flow of energy through fossil fuels at this current time, it's extremely irresponsible for a media to yell fire in a, in, a, in a you know a crowded theater, and that's what they're doing because there was a time when we tried to you know ban straws or we tried to push back plastic bags. In Hawaii, California, the, the coast cities have done a great job with mitigating and, and reducing the plastic straw through human behavior. And Warren Warren and Sanders came out and just said, "Nah, let's ban fracking." So let's get rid of straws, let's get rid of plastic bags, and let's just jump right to batting an industry. Well, to me, that's a little bit crazy. That literally is crazy. And so when I see the media report that, and then when I see the rise of PPE products, and I see hypodermic needles and coronavirus vaccines and all these different things that plastics are going to be needed for in order for our civilization to actually 
get back to work and be healthy and unfearful. It's just very odd to me that the media is still continuing to allow candidates to have a anti-fracking instead of a let's scale back type of a conversation. Does that make sense to you or, or am I just being a little bit critical for the media? No, I mean, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, and, and people say, candidates, um, I want to ban fracking. Well, I'm convinced they don't really know what fracking is. Fracking is a portion of the process of extraction. So, I, you know, are they really saying I want to ban oil and gas production? Um, or are they saying I want to ban a portion of the process to where we, you know, extract? So I, I think there's all kinds of education um, that needs to go on there um, if folks are willing to learn about the oil and gas industry and how um, we get product out of the ground safely. So there's that. But number two, you're right. And if their premise is we want to ban the production of oil and gas, well, that's all kinds of um, irresponsibility that, that's happening there. Economically, it would literally devastate uh, complete state economies like New Mexico that we just mentioned. It would severely, severely devastate um, the state of Texas, Colorado, North Dakota, Oklahoma. I mean, we could go on and on. But as well as this country, you just mentioned all of the things that we have come to rely upon um, and that really keep have kept us, the United States, being at the, at the forefront of technology and innovation and progress. Um, that didn't, that, when you take that away, I mean, you're, the, the economy and our way of life is going to follow. And so, I think people need to understand if the premise is that we want to ban oil and gas, well, then we, we, we're going to do away with cars and cell phones and makeup and medical devices uh, that save people's lives every day. Um, the, way, the world as we know it will, will come to a screeching halt. I mean, that's what people need to understand. But the second really important part here is when it comes to the security, the national security of this country. We are, for the first time, energy independent, and that means we do not have to rely on hostile countries um, to give us the energy that we need. Um, that in and of itself is amazing, and we should, we should never go back to becoming reliant um, on, on hostile countries who don't think the United States is a good place to be um, or, or like our, our democracy. Um, why on earth would we ever want to go back to that? Well, the, the, the oil and gas industry and all of our production here and certainly right here in the Permian Basin, we're the heart of it, has allowed us to be energy independent. So we don't have to make decisions based off of if we're going to get, you know, another country's uh, energy source or not. And that, that's amazing. And Americans should, should know that and should demand nothing less from here forward. Tracy Bentley with us with the Permian Strategic Partnership. They have a brand new study that I personally believe everybody in oil and gas should check out just to find out what's been going on as well as what is going to happen over the next several years to decades in the Permian, what kind of reserves they have as well as some of the other information that uh, people in the Permian will want to know. But I'm just talking about people outside the Permian. You might want to check this out as well. Uh, I did want to ask you a tough question as we wrap up here, and then we'll transition into a, a summary of the uh, Permian Basin unlocking the full potential study and report that was recently re released by the Permian Strategic Partnership. Now, I just by kind of scrolling over it really quickly and looking at a, a few things over the weekend, um, 
it seemed like a pretty dry, uh, factual type of a report. It didn't seem like there was a lot of bells and whistles in terms of you didn't speculate in a lot of areas and you didn't, you know, make up a lot of different things. It seemed like your pretty basic report. Is that fair to say? Well, I suppose it depends on, um, you know, what what gets you excited or not. (laughs) I think by and large, large, you're right. We didn't dress it up on purpose. So we want it to be wanted it to be very, very factual. And somebody like, well, I, I'll speak for myself. I find this stuff very exciting and fascinating, but I understand to those who maybe not in the, in the energy, energy industry how it could come across dry. Um, but I still think anybody, whether you're in this industry or you know much about it or not, I still think it's hard not to um, be pretty taken aback by, by some of the facts in this report. Well, and that's where I was going with this is that, you know, looking at these numbers is pretty incredible. A lot of the stuff that's happening here, and, and to me, I, I think it's a pretty black and white, pretty dry, uh, and I mean that in a good way. I mean that in a good way. Because the question I have for you, I don't know if you know how to answer this. I have absolutely no idea if you know how to answer this at all, but I know you know what I'm talking about, but I don't even know if you know how to answer this. We are entering a world where the word ESG is becoming so common. I talked to an uh, operator earlier in the week, and they're doubling their ESG uh, report for their shareholders from 50 to 100 pages uh, that they, they're doing to revise it. I don't know how you put that into a, a, a report because it is a mood, it is intangible, it is it is is so new that yet it's so real. Um, I, I see it. It's I I don't know if you put it in the report or if it was influenced in the report at all or if you guys talked about that or if if you have an opinion on it or what. But I just feel like it needs to be brought up in some way of a discussionary type of a thing that it just seems like this ESG score and movement is here. And the energy industry is still trying to figure out how to integrate that into their new way of doing business. Um, have you had any conversations with anybody about this? Or do you kind of know this direction that I'm talking about? Or is it not going that way? Or No, I think, I think by and large, you're exactly right. Um, ESG is becoming more and more important um, to shareholders as as time goes on, and I can tell you that I can speak for my 20 companies, um, they take it very serious um, and in many cases go above and beyond um, the, the, the current requirements when it comes to, to ESG. And, and honestly, uh, Jason, I think that the Permian Strategic Partnership and the vision that my member companies had to create it, it really goes to the heart of it. So the Permian Strategic Partnership, your listeners should know, we are a coalition of 20 of the country's largest energy companies um, in the Permian Basin who have come together um, to work with local leaders and state leaders and federal leaders um, to improve the quality of life for those residents in the Permian Basin. And we have five research shows that we need to, in order to make the Permian a world-class place to live, um, we need to focus on five areas, and that's um, roads, which we've spent a lot of time talking about today. It's quality to, uh, or excuse me, access to quality healthcare, access to quality education, um, workforce development, um, and, and affordable housing. 
And those are things that typically the industry hasn't uh, worked on, I'll say. Now, individual companies certainly have, and they know that these five elements are key to getting um, a good uh, trained workforce and, and in a particular area where they're developing. But we've never seen it to this scale. Uh, the Permian Basin is very, very large. And to, to tackle, to attempt to tackle and partner um, with folks in our area to address these issues is, um, it's never been done before. But how exciting is that, that you're seeing an industry put their money where their mouth is and step up and say, if not us, then who? And so I, can, I just want to tell you that last year we funded over $30 million in initiatives in those, in those core areas. Um, and we, we, we did some amazing things in the world of healthcare, education, uh, roads, and housing. And so I just couldn't be more excited, but I think it's important for, for folks to know who say that the industry needs to step up and really put their money where their mouth is and do, do some, you know, very tangible ESG things. Well, I think we are the prime example of that. How can people get in touch with you? And are, do you guys take memberships or is it kind of an invite-only club? Uh, talk to me about, you know, what you guys have going at the Permian Strategic Partnership, if you guys do an annual meeting or anything like that, events, you know. I, we, we have the report out, and uh, we'll have a link, of course, to our website, uh, linking it to the report and everything. But uh, uh, go ahead and give your organization a plug and, and uh, memberships and that sort of thing. Sure. It, well, if you go to permianpartnership.org, um, you will find uh, uh, our last year review, and it talks about all of the amazing initiatives that we funded last year. It also talks about who we are and which 20 um, companies, some of which we've spoken about today, are members of the Permian Strategic Partnership. And it talks about uh, a lot about this, the study, as you will find on there, and some things that we've some other things um, that we've partnered on at the, at the state and federal level. So it's a very comprehensive, I think, easy read to go to the website and find out more about what we do. On that website, if you all would like to be kept up, kept involved on, on progress that we're making, you can sign up for our newsletter. And so every couple months we send those who sign up a newsletter to say, hey, here's here's what we're up to now. Um, Got to keep everybody up to speed. And to your membership question, we are certainly not exclusive. We want to part we want uh, any and all energy companies who want to be part and share our vision um, to we, we want to visit with you you know and uh, we think that there's no magic number um, we just those who, who want to invest with us in the Permian Basin um, in our five core areas um, absolutely we'd love to visit and there's a space on our website where you can contact us. 